verse 30. Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Verse 36. John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why am I not able to follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow three times until you have denied me. Father, I do thank you for your word. I pray that you would bless it to us. Open up our hearts. Let it find fertile ground. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. And I know I messed it up there at the end, by the way. It's Peter's going to deny him three times, not the rooster crow three times. So off to a stellar start. Anyway, welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. We're finishing up chapter 13 today as we look at the last three verses, starting with verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. I want to start out this morning by saying that our greatest human strengths, no matter what they are, will never be adequate for following Christ. What would you say is your greatest natural strength? Is it a winning personality, charm, discipline, intelligence, speaking ability, wealth, or an attractive or impressive appearance? And if you think you have all those things, I wouldn't include humility also. Now, Christ can use all of these things, but if we suppose we will be able to follow him and serve him just because of our natural gifts, in and of themselves, apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we had better prepare ourselves for a plunge like Peter's. Natural devotion and natural strength will always deny Jesus somewhere and sometime. I know that of which I speak. The last three verses of John 13 are going to center on the Apostle Peter. Now, he's a disciple with which many of us can identify with and from whom we can all learn valuable and practical lessons of Christian living and service. If only we did not have to learn the lessons the hard way, the way that Peter did. Now, sometimes preachers will use Peter as sort of a homiletical whipping boy. It's great fun to portray Peter gurgling water as he is slipping below the waters of Galilee. But it may be good for us all to remember that none of us in here has ever walked on water. Now his passion and boyishness and honesty makes him a lovable figure. And the Gospels are full of Peter. No disciple spoke as often as Peter, and the Lord addressed him more than any of his other followers. But in contrast, no disciple was reproved by Jesus as much or as strongly as Peter. Not only that, he was the only disciple who thought it was his duty to reprove Jesus. Now, Christ spoke words of approval and praise to Peter, the likes of which he spoke to no other man. 
But at the same time, and almost sometimes in the same breath, he said sterner things to Peter than he ever said to any of the other 12 apostles, including Judas. And all four of the lists of the apostles that are given in the Gospels, the order of the names may vary, but Peter's is always first, and Judas is always last. And so the gospel testify to Peter's primacy. Peter was always talking. And his speech ranged from the ridiculous to the sublime. Sometimes it seemed he only opened his mouth to change feet. At other times, though, his words were priceless. For example, in the upper room, Peter said, No, you shall never wash my feet. And then completely reversed himself by saying, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And after Christ's resurrection, Peter's unforgettable tenderness was poignantly expressed in John 21:17, where Peter says, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. It will always be to his credit that when the others abandoned Jesus, realizing he was not primarily a political deliverer, but a spiritual savior, this prompted Jesus to say, you do not want to leave me also, do you? It was Peter who replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we believe and we know that you are the Holy One from God. Now, when I think of Peter, I imagine a broad-shouldered, loud, extroverted, assertive man who was a little smelly and always sweating. But with all that said, two outstanding characteristics contribute to the importance of Peter. First, he was a man with a bold and impulsive confidence. Even before he met Christ, I'm sure he was full steam ahead. But in like manner, after he met Christ, he had something to live for. He was the first out of the boat, first with the sword at the tomb, and second to the, to the empty tomb only because jogging was not his thing. Secondly, he loved Christ. Now these two qualities combined to produce Peter's character. But they also combined to his fateful presumption. So when Jesus tells Peter that he cannot follow him, let's just say that that didn't go over well with Peter. Peter did not like that at all. And so he protested, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now this is vintage Peter. Why do you mean I can't follow you? I will lay down my life for you if necessary. Now, this is not the first time that Peter was presumptuous. Now, make no mistake about it, though. Peter meant what he said. He was not a flippant braggart. If the Romans would have came in right then, Peter would have told them to put up their dukes. Now, Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Peter is going to learn this. Peter's presumption came partly from a shallow understanding of what it really means to follow Christ and partly from a mistaken estimate of his own abilities. Now, following Christ is probably the most challenging and difficult thing in our lives. 
It requires far more than natural human determination or ability. It requires the life of Christ in us. And Peter did not yet know that in its fullness. It was so easy for Peter to measure everything from his own perspective and from his natural strength. Peter was like, look, I don't know about the rest of the group, but I know I can do it. I've never backed down from anyone or anything. I'm a fighter. You even called me the rock. That makes me the original Rocky. The original Rocky because he's fighting. And verse 37, Peter promises not only will he follow Jesus anywhere, he'll even go to the extreme of actually laying down his life for the Savior. Now, Peter thought that he knew himself better than Jesus did, and therefore he trusted in his own goodness. It was Jimmy Cricket that said, Give a little whistle and let your conscience be your guide. Well, the problem with that is serial killers have been doing that for years. So verse 38 must have absolutely floored him. Let's look at it. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter's readiness to die for Christ is not quite what he thinks it is. Now, his use of the sword at the garden shows that he was ready in certain circumstances to face death boldly. So there was truth as well as error in his words. But he was not ready to stand for Jesus when all seemed lost. That demanded a different brand of courage and devotion. But before we get into Peter this morning, I'd like to apply the same question to all of us here. For the Lord continues to ask it down through the quarters of time. When, while Jesus asked of Peter, he asked of everyone here this morning, and that question is this, will you lay down your life for my sake? Now, of course, in its context, it is speaking of physical martyrdom, but I think it applies in a much broader aspect than that. Now, I am certainly no hero or no martyr. But in some ways, I think dying for Christ once physically is easier than dying for him in a hundred different ways every single day. What do I mean? We have to be faithful in the little things if we ever want God to use us in any of the bigger things. I believe the following insight catches the practical implications of this kind of consecration. To give my life for Christ in a physical way appears glorious. To pour myself out for others and to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, like Peter, we may say, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready to go out in a blaze of glory. We can think of giving our all to the Lord as like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on a table and saying, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality is that for most of us, he sends us to the bank and he has us cash in that $1,000 for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. We listen to the neighbor's kid's troubles instead of telling him to get lost. 
or we give a cup of water to a shaky old man in the nursing home, or we make jambalaya for Amy's house of hope. What I'm telling us is that usually giving our life for Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory, but it's much harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. Here's a good example. Do you remember when David was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel? What was he doing at the time? He was tending sheep, and his father didn't even consider him to even be a candidate to be the next king. But here's the interesting thing. After David was anointed king, we read that King Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. And so they decided to get David to play the harp, which would drive the evil spirit away. But guess where they went to find him? Back in the countryside, still being faithful, tending sheep, even though he has already been anointed to be the next king of Israel. That tells us that he was faithful in the small things. Jesus says in Luke 16.10 that he was faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he was unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. That means that faithfulness is God's yardstick for success. One day when you stand before him, he is not going to say, well done, you good and wealthy servant, or well done, you good and famous servant. But he will say, well done, you good and faithful servant. All we have to do is be faithful to use the talents and the abilities that he has given us. Whether you lead a worldwide ministry, or you teach the kids, or you faithfully parent your kids, or you just shine your light wherever God has placed you, faithfulness to that task will be your reward. Jesus answered Peter in verse 38, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three different times. Peter did not know how weak he really was. Perhaps Jesus' word had an effect on him because we don't hear another word from Peter during the whole upper room discourse. I can see Peter reproved like a chastened puppy. So I think sometimes it's good to ask myself, am I really a follower of Christ? I don't think there are really too many real followers of Jesus anymore in regards to the entire church population. Now, there are plenty of church-going admirers, but most of us would rather not leave our nets behind and then totally follow him. Instead, we prefer dragging our nets behind us onto the shore so we can have the best of both worlds. But, of course... That really never works. You can't really follow Jesus while you're dragging your old life behind you. And in the end, if you try that, you're going to end up losing out on both things. Now, every once in a while, I get caught trying to do that, trying to pursue what Jesus has to offer and what the world has to offer at the same time. But it's useless because they lie in opposite directions. 
When Jesus called people to be his disciples, it always meant leaving someone or something behind. Follow me, told his disciples. Follow me, said to the thieves, the prostitutes, the lawyers, and the priests. Follow me, he still whispers to us today. Where? Toward what? Toward the cross. The road that Jesus walks leads all the way to the cross. And it is there that old lives, old priorities, and old selves have to be put to death. And make no mistake about it, no one knows what they are living for until they know what they are willing to die for. But back to Peter and the others. Since events would prove them to all be drastically overestimating themselves. Tragically, Jesus saw a prediction, will you lay down your life for me? And then Jesus predicts this. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food is far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. At this point in his pilgrimage, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. So ask us again, are we truly Jesus' disciples? Are you? Am I? Now Paul makes this point in the first half of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a verse that's about temptation when he says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up underneath it. As we read that verse, we notice that the first half indicates that temptation is going to come to everyone, for this is common to all men. This is not Paul's main point. It's merely his secondary point. Paul's main point is God has provided a way for his children to escape any temptation. So when temptations come, we're not to think that we are experiencing something extraordinary and therefore despair. But rather we are to know that we're only experiencing what others have experienced before and so turn to God who has delivered others and can also deliver us. This is Paul's main point. But back to the truth that temptations do come to everyone and that everyone can fall into them. Now, sometimes we can get to thinking that we are too old, well, some of us anyway, that the battle has passed us by, that we are on vacation or some such thing, and that we therefore no longer need to be on guard against certain types of sins. If that is the case, we need to learn from David in regard to his great sin that he had with Bathsheba. How old do you suppose David was when he sinned with Bathsheba? Now, we tend to think of sexual sins as being sins of the youth, the time when a young man is supposed to sow his wild oats. But this was not the case with David. David must have been at least 50 years old. Now, on the other hand, we look at Peter this morning, and at that time, he was in the prime of his life. And moreover, we find him well aware of the dangers that face both himself and the others at this time in Christ's ministry. So here he is, as prepared as anyone could be, to face this temptation. 
Peter had heard Thomas say, as the little company was about to go up to Jerusalem for the last time, Thomas said, let us also go, that we may die with him. So he knew that danger threatened. Besides, he had bought a sword. We know this because when the enemies of Christ came to arrest him at the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter drew the sword and went after the man leading the column. And finally, we notice that Peter, unlike David, had even been warned of what was coming. That's what our text is about this morning. Jesus had foretold his own departure, and Peter had objected, saying, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will follow you anywhere. I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, they want to deny me three different times. Now, this is ironic, of course, in some ways, but it was actually the Lord who was about to lay his life down for Peter. Nevertheless, in these words, Peter had a prophecy of the danger that awaited him. He only had to remain strong until morning and until the rooster crowed to bypass that. Yet in spite of the fact that he understood the danger, was prepared to meet it, and was forewarned by the Lord's own solemn prophecy, he still fell. The thing I want us to see this morning is that David was not prepared for temptation, and he fell. In contrast, Peter was prepared, yet he also fell. The point is, is that anyone can fall. Temptations come to anyone at any age and at any time, and anyone can fall into any kind of sin as a result of that. Now, in his overconfidence, Peter failed not at his weakest point, but at his strongest point. He was no coward. He was truly ready to die for Jesus, yet he trembled at the innocent question of a servant girl. Now, how is that to be explained? A.W. Pink writes, Only on the ground that God permitted it in such an order to teach him and us the all-important lesson that if left to ourselves, the strongest of us are as weak as water. It is in our conscious weakness that our strength really lies. Well, like us, Peter had to learn this, and we know that he did. The story goes like this. After Jesus had been arrested, we are told that Peter followed him at a distance, which, by the way, never really works either. The procession first came to the house of Annas, where John's connection got him past the first doorkeeper and into the courtyard. But there was a cost. A slave girl who kept the door recognized Peter and said, You're not one of his disciples, are you? To which Peter amazingly answered, I am not. It was cold, so as Jesus' interrogation continued behind closed doors, those in the courtyard, including Peter, warmed themselves over the glowing charcoal of the enemy's fire. Again, a girl spoke out. This fellow is one of them. Peter again firmly denied it. Well, about an hour passed, and now the soldiers are starting to get suspicious also because of Peter's accent. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, they said. Then one of the slaves who was a relative of Malchus piped up. Didn't I see you with him in that olive grove? Peter was now trapped. 
There was no way out except one. One commentator described it this way. Peter's face flushed, and then his lips curled, and words that had long fallen into disuse poured forth. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I do not know this man you are talking about. It was the moment of truth. In the heat of that denial, though, Peter was oblivious to the shuffle of feet. As Christ was being led out of the courtyard, and certainly Peter was not prepared for the excruciation of the next moment. Luke tells us, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Imagine that moment. Christ paused and looked right into the soul of Peter. And the tears coursed down that disciple's face like rain down a rock. Peter, so filled with presumption just a few hours earlier, had declared that he would die for his master, has now denied him. Worse, it was not a silent default, and worse yet, it happened not once, but three different times. That incident shows us that even one of the inner band of the apostles may fail in discipleship. No one would have predicted Peter's plunge. That great apostle had felt precisely at the point of his greatest human strength. This natural extrovert and naturally brave man cannot bear the ridicule of a servant girl. Now, in fairness, what has happened to Peter has happened in some way to all the apostles and happens even today to those who follow Christ. For instance, the apostle Paul was one of the greatest minds of the church has ever produced. Yet he was not by nature bold. Well, why would I say that? One time he asked, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words will be given me that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. But Paul did finally ascend to the heights of boldness. Acts 14 records of him being dragged out of the city of Lystra, stoned, and left for dead. And how the disciples were standing about him, mourning over his supposed dead body, when Paul pops open an eye and says, all right, let's get going. And they did, right back into Lystra. We also have his emboldened defense for King Agrippa in Acts 26, where Paul says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will rather boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Well, why would he say something like that? That verse ends, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. And despite his three denials, did Jesus cast off Peter? He had every reason to do so. Peter had denied him. He might have judged Peter unfit for further service or even for salvation. But this is not the Lord's way. He will come again to recommission Peter to service. Likewise, 
Did God cast off Abraham after he left Ur the Chaldees for the promised land, but it stopped at Haran instead? No. God came to Abraham a second time with the identical promise of a great spiritual blessing. Did God cast off Moses after Moses had decided that he could free his people by his own strength? And he killed an Egyptian. Then he had to flee to Egypt from Egypt to Midian. No. God came to Moses with a new revelation of himself, one that contained a promise to do what Moses had attempted to do but was unable to do in his own strength. Did God cast off Jonah after Jonah had fled from him and fell so deeply into sin that he declared, I would rather die than go to Nineveh? No. God came to Jonah a second time also. Likewise, God comes to us a second, third, fourth, hundredth, or even a thousandth time if necessary that we might have fellowship with him. Moreover, none of us would be here at this moment if God had not so operated with us. The Bible says we are unfaithful, yet he abides faithful. He loves each of his own to the very end. Now, do we deserve that? No. But we can respond to it, saying as Isaac Watts did, When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt upon my pride. As we finish this morning, the Peter we see in John 21 in the book of Acts is a different Peter. He was truly a changed man. On the day of Pentecost, his life displayed the overflowing sufficiency of the Holy Spirit as we hear his blistering sermon that he gives in Acts 2. And before the cynical and sophisticated Caiaphas who had ordered Christ's death, Peter said, then know this, you and everyone else in Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by under which man can be saved. It then says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So we see that Peter had become a rock. He was stronger after his failure. He was stronger after his plunge than he would have been before. I like how one commentator says it. He says, Peter was a remarkable demonstration of Christ's power. The rope that is broken is strongest after it is spliced. Not because it was broken, but because a skillful hand has strengthened it. We may be stronger for our sins, not because sin strengthens, for it weakens, but because God restores. So back to my original question. Are we truly disciples? Now, no doubt most of us will gladly answer, yes, I'm a disciple. But when we think about it, let us think about discipleship according to the definition that Jesus himself gave to it. Jesus defined a disciple as one who continues in the word, loves the brethren, and bears much fruit. Do we do each of these? Jesus said, if you hold on to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Then he said, this is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so God grant that we may do each of these things as we drop all lesser loyalties and draw ever closer to him. Father, I do thank you that you are such a patient and forgiving God. That you are long-suffering. Lord, that is our only chance. You have been so kind and so gracious in my own life. Uh, Times when I hated myself, you by your Holy Spirit would woo me right back to you. I never want to take that for granted, Lord. And you, as every Sunday, you alone knows every heart in here and where they are with you. I pray that you would just open up their understanding, open up my understanding, and draw us into you, into whatever aspect of you that we need, whether that's a savior or a sanctifier or a strengthener or an encourager, whatever we need, Lord. Uh, Sometimes it's just good old-fashioned discipline. Uh, Do that for us, for we know that we will be better in the end because of it, like Peter. We ask these things in your name.